Let's begin this message with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Rock, and our Redeemer. And it is only by the blood of Christ that we approach you this morning and call you Abba, Father. And Father, we thank you for your word, for your word gives us light. Your word gives us light when there is much darkness. Your word gives us light and clarity when there is great confusion. And your word gives us peace when there is great turmoil. So we ask, we ask this morning that you would open the eyes of our heart to, to see and understand great things from your word. And may your word give light this morning. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it is my great joy and privilege to finish up this series on social justice and the Bible. We've heard from many of you with follow-up questions and comments, uh, encouragements. And if you have any other questions or thoughts, I, I would encourage you to email either myself or Pastor Micah. Please don't be afraid to ask. We'd love to hear from, from you all. I want to recommend several resources, and I was thinking about uh, those resources as I was singing. And we'll email those out this week. But uh, So three things I want to recommend to you. The first is a podcast, a podcast called Just Thinking, Just Thinking. So this po- in this podcast, two Christian brothers talk about current issues, particularly uh, the issues of justice and race. I mean, they cover a lot of cultural issues from a biblical perspective, but man, their content on these issues of justice and race uh, for, from a biblical worldview, they cover from a biblical worldview, it's just excellent. And they speak in a straightforward way with biblical conviction and and what I appreciate, there's no, uh, no worldly ideology mixed into it. So really good. The second uh, resource, or the second person I would recommend to you is a pastor by the name of Vodi Bakum. Vodi Bakum, his uh, name is a little bit different or hard to spell, but we'll, we'll send it out this week. You can find sermons of his on YouTube. And he has a lot of sermons on the issue of race and ethnicity and social justice and cultural Marxism. Um, so his sermons were particularly helpful to me. And the last one is uh, a Christian apologist, I think, who lives in Texas. And he runs a blog. His name is Neil Shenvey. And he runs a blog that's particularly dedicated to the issue of critical theory and critical race theory. And his content there is absolutely fantastic. So I'd really highly recommend uh, his blog to you, Neil Shenvey. So we'll be emailing those out to the body uh, later this week. So in light of all that we have learned from the scriptures and in view of the culture that is in front of us. Now what? As Francis Schaeffer said, how shall we then live? I want to answer that question not just in a theoretical sense. I mean, we will cover the the principles, but I want to do so. I want to answer those questions um, by applying the principles that we find in the scriptures to the situation we find ourselves in today. We must study scripture, so we must exegete scripture, but we must, in a certain sense, also exegete the culture and the society that we live in so that we can know how to apply the scriptures in the world we live in and also how to live wisely and skillfully and biblically in this world. When all Israel came to make David king in place of Saul, this was said of the men of Issachar who came to make him king. 
First Chronicles 12.32 says, of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So they knew the times, and that knowledge of the times gave them wisdom into how they should act. So may we likewise, like the men of Issachar, know the times and know what we ought to do. So here's how we will tackle today's subject. We'll ask and answer two questions. Two questions. What is the mission of the church and what is the mission of Christians? And we'll answer those two questions and and answer those questions in particular relation to the issues of justice and race and ethnicity. So the first question, what is is the mission of the church? What is the mission of Foothill Bible Church and of every other church, true Bible-believing, gospel-believing church around the world? The mission of the church is this, to make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. And that is our mission as FBC, for Jesus himself gave us that mission. Let's look at Matthew 28, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, a text well-known and beloved by all of us here. So Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And I love how Matthew finishes his book here. I mean, talk about knowing just how to end on a high note and just leave your heart burning, right? Just burning with a passion for Christ. And this is how Matthew ends his book. This is what he wants us to know. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And as I'm just reading this now, I'm reminded of, one mountain in Galilee that we went to when we were in Israel and just thinking, man, this could have been the mountain that Jesus commissioned his disciples from. Okay, so verse 17, and when they saw him, I think these are the 11, they worshiped him, but some, and I think the some here are speaking of others who were accompanying the 11, some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us, will be with his disciples to the end of the age. You notice in verse 16 how Matthew sets this mandate, how he sets this commission, this charge up. He he says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee and they worshipped, they worshipped the risen Jesus. Their heart attitude was that of reverence and submission. Jesus, who had been given all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus is king. And this sovereign king gathered his disciples. I imagine him looking them in the eye one by one and giving them this charge. Go and make 
disciples. They were to go to all the nations and make disciples because Jesus is king, not just of Israel. He is king of all the earth. And every knee must bow to this king. You see, Jesus is no religious pluralist. He is no postmodern philosopher who believed that there were many ways to God. No, he demands the exclusive allegiance, the exclusive worship of every person on earth, including you and including me. Because he is king. This is our mission, church family, to make disciples of the risen king. That is why Jesus has left us here on earth instead of taking us to heaven. Because we have a mission to accomplish. The fundamental problem with humanity is not, is not poverty, oppression, sickness, hunger, or war. No, the fundamental problem with humanity is high-handed rebellion against the Son of God. Sin is the problem. I think of Psalm 2. David says, why do the nations rage? They have set themselves against the Lord and against whom? And his anointed. The nations rage because they hate Christ. They reject his authority. You see, our problem at its core is not sin against one another, but sin against our maker. I'm reminded of this from the book of Exodus. Israel had spent over 400 years in slavery, in bondage to the Egyptians, they cried out to the Lord, it says, at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And God heard them. He remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he mercifully and lovingly delivered them from slavery, from oppression. He set them free. But that generation, as they left Egypt and journeyed to the promised land, what did they do? They stuck their fist in the face of God and said, we will not have you as our king. We will make other gods in place of Yahweh. That was their problem. It was the enmity of their heart against God. So as we go to the nations, we make disciples. And I, and I think in the Great Commission itself, for Christians... There is a cure for ethnic pride, is there not? For all the nations need the gospel, and we need the gospel, you and I need the gospel just as much as the unbeliever in a far-off land. The gospel tells us we are no better than they are. We need Christ, we need a Savior. No matter how sophisticated we are, scientific or intellectual we are, we need Christ. I would rather be a believer in the jungles in the bush of Papua New Guinea 
than living here in America without Christ. Because all we have, as we sang, is Christ, right? And if we have Christ, let the world take everything from us, but they cannot take Christ. We make disciples. How do we make disciples? By heralding, by proclaiming, by preaching Christ. And how can someone believe without hearing? And how can they hear unless we preach? Unless you and I open our mouths and preach. That is why this pulpit is the center of what we do here at FBC. Because we must proclaim Christ. We don't do theater. We don't do you know, interpretive dance or whatever that means. I, I you know, grew up in a church context, man, where we did you know, worship dancing. I don't even know what that means. There, is no, there was no proclamation of Christ in that. We must open our lips and preach Christ. You've heard of the saying, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That is a totally unbiblical statement. No, we preach the gospel and we must by necessity use words. I heard something recently that kind of stuck with me. It says that the the current mob mentality relies on fear and intimidation. They, they fear and intimidate and force people into silence. Their strategy relies on the silence of those who are afraid. And we must stand. And we must not be afraid. We must open our lips and preach Christ. No matter the consequences. We proclaim to the world, to a lost, dying, hell-bound world that they are at enmity with their creator, their loving and good and merciful creator. They have sinned against a holy and a loving God. And because of that sin, they are destined and justly so for an eternity in hell because they have sinned against an infinitely loving and glorious God. And the guilt of their sin is infinite. But God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to live a perfect life that we could not live, to bear the burden of our sin that we could not bear, to take the punishment that we deserved and die the death that you and I deserved to die. And he rose again, conquering sin and death. And he ascended to the right hand of his father. And he is coming again, beloved to make this world right, to deliver you and me, and to judge those who reject him as king. Why do the nations rage? Because they reject Christ. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. And the father says, as for me, I have appointed my son on my holy hill, he is coming one day. So let the rulers of the earth consider. Kiss the son. Pay homage to him. Lest you be consumed by him. And this king, this son, will not just be the conquering king of his enemies. But he extends 
mercy and forgiveness to his enemies if they but bow the knee to him in repentance and faith. So I would ask you this morning, where are you with Christ today? Where are you with Christ? As we've been going through this series and as we've been talking about this, just the madness of the culture around us, you might be amening and amening in your heart. But have you bowed the knee to Christ? Have you? Have you surrendered your life to him? Can you call him Lord, Master? For if you are not in submission to him now, and he is coming one day with wrath against you. So this is the gospel. This is our message. We must not be silent. Verse 19, Christ says, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These disciples of Jesus are now dead to their sin. They are alive in Christ and they're baptized in the name, in the one name, one God, three persons, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are now inseparably united with the triune God. You see, this is what the church has that no other institution on earth has. We have the message of eternal life. We have the message that deals with the greatest problem on earth, the problem of sin. When I was in college, I went to a conference for collegiate Christians. There were tens of thousands of students there. There was a seminar, many seminars, and I signed up for, I went to one. It was, there was one seminar was called How Jesus Shared the Gospel. It piqued my interest and I thought, man, that sounds really good. I want to go and learn how Jesus shared the gospel. This is what was taught. The speaker said this. God created the world, and this world became messed up. And it is messed up with war, poverty, injustices, oppression. And Jesus cares about these injustices. And if you follow him, you can join him in the fight against injustice. In fact, he wants you to join him in the fight against injustice. Now, this was back then when I didn't really have much biblical discernment, but it just didn't sit well with me. Like, what? It just doesn't sit. I've never heard that before. Like, how have I never heard that before? And something's just not right with that. I was kind of thinking on that. He finished his presentation. One of the first persons to raise her hand, small little girl, she raised her hand and with a kind of a timid and wavering, but with a firm voice, she asked this, excuse me, in this gospel, where is sin? You never mentioned sin. And I was like, dang, <laughs> she's right. <laughs> like, she's right. Where is sin? That message is a damning message. That God somehow wants us on his team. And we have yet to deal, we haven't dealt with the fundamental problem of our hearts, rebellion against God. That, 
That is a damning message. As Paul said to the Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, right? That is not the gospel. Brothers, the, the church can try to end poverty. I heard Rick Warren say you know, years ago that he realized that he didn't care diddly squat about poverty. He was going to try to end it. Right? The church can try to end poverty and send spiritually bankrupt people to an eternity in hell. The church can try to end racism as one president of a big denomination just tweeted, can try to end racism and never deal with the hatred of the human heart against God. The church can start tutoring centers, after-school programs, and never teach people about Christ. Now, should the church be involved in any of these causes? Perhaps, as wisdom dictates, but there must always, always be a gospel component to these endeavors. And I love what Peter and Heather Malachar do. Right? They, they serve the, the children of the slums in India, but man, there is a gospel emphasis in that ministry. Right? So please don't hear me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that the church should not be involved in anything. Right? I think of the rise of Hitler in power and, and how many churches, many churches, did stand up to take in the Jews, right? May we do so if we are called upon in such a manner. But there must always, always, always be a gospel component to everything we do. Now, the church is not just called to make disciples. We are called to mature disciples. Our mission is not just done when people repent and believe in Jesus. We are not satisfied. It's like, okay, good, you're your relationship with God is good, but your marriages are wrecked. Your children are crazy. Your work ethic is terrible. Awesome, but you're still going to heaven. No, no, that's not what we want. Our thinking on all of life needs to be brought in submission to King Jesus. And as our thinking is renewed, Romans 12, our lives are transformed. In verse 20, this is what Jesus says. You make disciples, you baptize them, and then, verse 20, what do we do? We teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The church must teach its people what the Bible says on all issues of life because Jesus is king of heaven and earth. He's king of it all. So we must teach how we can live all of our lives in submission to King Jesus. We must teach on marriage, family, work, economics, creation, the environment, justice, beauty, art, music, government, race, ethnicity, war, just to name a few examples. We must teach on everything. Marxism, as an example. Why is Marxism wrong? Is it just because we live in a capitalistic country and we don't like it? 
part of it, right? But why is it wrong? Well, what about one of the Ten Commandments? Says, thou shalt not steal, right? We must not steal. What about the freedom of speech? Oh, we love the freedom of speech, and I do. I do in this country. And the First Amendment is what protects what we do in this church. But we, do we believe in the freedom of speech just because of the First Amendment? No. What about Proverbs 18, 17? The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Right? The freedom of speech helps us to arrive at truth. As Christians, we believe in one truth, but we believe in the freedom of expression so that we might arrive at the truth. See, we must know God's revealed mind on all of life and obey what he has revealed. And I think this is where we can do better as a church. We must do better at teaching what the scriptures say on every aspect of life. Because we want to be mature disciples who skillfully and wisely and biblically think about and navigate all of life. So we're called to make disciples and mature disciples, and then we are called to multiply disciples. I love the book of Acts because it tells us how we are to multiply disciples. We are to preach the gospel in our cities, and then we are to send missionaries and church planters and gospel workers to plant more churches. The primary method of making disciples outside of our community is the planting of churches. So we pray that God would raise up more church planters, missionaries, gospel workers from our midst. That's you guys, right? And those will go out and the majority will stay, but we must all be engaged in the mission of making, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus. Now, how do we, FBC, fulfill this mission in light of the world that we are living in? Now, man, that's a huge question, and I can't answer that question in totality, but, but here's what we need to understand. And as Brother Steve read earlier, as Paul was preaching in Thessalonica. This is what we need to understand. The gospel will inevitably collide and violently so with the unbelieving world. And when I say violently, I'm not talking about blood, I'm talking about the conflict of ideas and values. Because what this world values is not what we value. This is what the unbeliever said about those first believers in Thessalonica. These men who have turned the world upside down, it's like, hey, they are totally against what we hold dear. They've turned the world upside down. They've come here also. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. And here's the key. Here's the key. They are saying that there is another king, Jesus. And you could just hear Matthew 28, right? 16 to 20 in this statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. These people, these Christians are saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And it's like, you're right. You got it. You heard us. There is another king. And it's not Caesar. Yes, Caesar is our king now on this earth. But we serve a greater king, King Jesus. Christ will collide with culture because Christ, not Caesar, is king. We serve a different king than this world. And the world wonders why, why we do not follow it into insanity. It's like he's a church, right guys? They tell us, stay home. Stay home for your own good. And we say, and there is more to life than physical safety. Stay home because death is terrible. And we say, no. Death is not the end. Christ commands us to gather and worship. Because as we gather to worship, we prepare ourselves. We encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. And the world doesn't understand that. Because they are without Christ. We do not intentionally look for conflict. It's not like we're trying to start riots, right? But we need to understand and embrace this, that the preaching of Christ, Christ himself, is an assault on this world. When Paul preached, he was beaten, stoned, given to the lions, imprisoned, ridiculed. There were riots, not the peaceful kind, but legit riots. They tried to silence him. And what did Paul do? He just kept on preaching because they could not silence him. Now, Paul, right, he wasn't made strong in his own strength. I think about in Corinth, and it's like, he's like, Lord, I, I've been through this how many times now, right? And it's, here it is again. I'm, I'm preaching, and, and man, they are, they're getting ready to come after me. And the Lord appeared to him in the night to strengthen him. Paul, keep on preaching. They're not going to harm you this time. Keep on preaching, for I have many people in this city. Christ strengthened Paul. Now, I've been thinking a lot on the book of Acts and just how Paul navigated opposition from this world against the gospel. And he did it in many ways. And what did he do when the governing authorities tried to shut him down? When the message Paul preached collided with culture. Paul lived in a Roman world. He was a Roman citizen by birth. To be Roman at that time was to be free. To be Roman meant that you were guaranteed certain rights that the Roman government had promised to protect those rights. Roman citizens could not be beaten publicly. They could not be punished without trial. They had the right to appeal their case to Caesar if a Roman citizen thought that he would not receive impartial and fair treatment from a certain magistrate. And Paul knew, here's the key, he knew those rights. 
and he employed them and he used them as needed. Let me point you to one case, Acts 16. Acts 16. And please hear me when I say, I, I want us to think principally, right, about what's happening here. I think we need wisdom to apply those principles to what we are doing today. But let us at least have the principles, the, the main foundations in place. Okay? Acts 16, 35 to 39 or to 40. So this is in Philippi. Paul was jailed for preaching Christ. He was beaten. Acts 16.35, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Here's the command, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Here it is, men who are Roman citizens. And have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, he says. No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. You see, Paul sought protection under his rights as a Roman citizen because those rights gave him freedom to preach the gospel without hindrance and persecution. So read through the book of Acts. See how Paul used these rights to outmaneuver his opponents, to resist persecution. Paul was no masochist. He wasn't like, yeah, come on, beat me. No, when he was in Jerusalem, they were about to beat him to find out what was going on. He's like, hey, time out. I'm a Roman citizen. You cannot do this. And what did those Roman soldiers do? They let him go and they were afraid when they heard that he was a Roman citizen. Now, did Paul find his ultimate identity in life as a Roman citizen? Of course not. He told the Philippians, your citizenship is in heaven. But, but this was the world that he lived in and he navigated that world with skill, with wisdom. Now you should see where this is going, right? We live in this country, a country that has promised to its citizens certain rights. We seek the preservation of these rights not so that we can build a Christian America. That's not the goal, right? Not the goal. But we seek the preservation of these freedoms so that we may worship God as he commands us to. So that we may speak words of life to a dying world. Now I'm watching this whole discussion on race, right? And they're already beginning to declare this issue of systemic racism a public health crisis. And in their eyes, if this is a public health crisis, they are going to ban certain kinds of speech in the name of health. These hate speech laws have an end to them, don't they? If you look at Canada, you speak out against the LGBT movement, 
And there is a target that is placed on you by the government. We seek protection as a church in the First Amendment to freely exercise our religion, to speak as God has commanded us to. We're supposed to be free in this country, are we not? I'm not ready to give up those freedoms. And Paul wasn't. He wasn't. And I think it is Pauline to seek protection under our rights as citizens of this country so that we can worship God and preach the gospel. Paul knew his rights as a Roman citizen and we should know ours as those who live in this country. Now think with me on the life of Paul. He appealed to Caesar at the end of the book of Acts, right? He went to Rome because he didn't think he would get a fair trial. And he was found not guilty. He had done nothing wrong. The gospel was not illegal. He had broken no Roman laws. He won that battle. And he lived to fight another day. But what happened? The gospel spread. There were more Romans who became Christians. The church in Rome grew. And Nero, who had ruled in Paul's favor before, he became threatened, insecure. He went insane. Nero burned the city of Rome. And what did he do? He blamed it on the Christians. Nero used an emergency to take away Paul's rights as a Roman citizen. And Nero put Paul, an innocent man, and many other Christians along with him to death. They burned them, used them as human torches for their parties. When Paul's rights as a Roman citizen were protected, he preached Christ. When they were taken away, he preached Christ. Listen to his words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My life is not precious to myself. My life can come and go. Take my life if needed. My one goal is to finish the mission that Christ gave me on that road to Damascus to preach Christ to the Gentiles, to testify of the grace of God. And you cannot stop me, Paul said. You cannot stop me. Because Christ himself gave me that mission. Beloved, I want that courage, right? Can we have that courage in and of ourselves? No. May Christ give us that courage. May we count the cost and preach Christ even and when Christ collides with culture. So what is the mission of the church? To make disciples, to make mature and multiply disciples. Second question, 
What is the mission of the Christian? So we've asked that question collectively. Now for the individual, what is the mission of the Christian? Now we know that the individual Christian is called to make disciples. It is not just the mission of the church, but the mission of all of us. Your mission, my mission to make disciples. The work of disciple-making is not just the work of elders. We, have, we all have a role to play. Here's Paul's words to the Roman Christians, Romans 15, 14. He said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So two things strike or stand out to me from this verse. The book of Romans, what we call, what we think of as like the most complex and hard to understand epistle in the New Testament was written not to the theologians of the Roman church, but to the people of the Roman church. He expected them to understand what he was writing. And these words that he was giving to them would fill them with all goodness, with all knowledge, and on the basis of that knowledge, they would all individually be able to instruct one another. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 says that the pastors of the church equip the saints, the people of God, to do the work of ministry. Right? The pastors, the elders teach, equip, and the people of God minister to one another. They do the work of ministry. Right? This is not a, a spectator sport. We don't just come and you know, pay, our t- pay our ticket and, and get a good show and awesome, great, time to go home. No, we come, we worship, we engage in worship, and we minister to one another. When someone is down, we encourage them. When someone is struggling with sin, we help them. When someone needs counsel on on what to do in a tricky situation, we open up the word of God and give them wisdom. We believe in the church, in the priesthood of all believers, right? that all of us are equipped to minister to one another. And all of us are commanded by Christ to take the gospel to the nations, to our communities, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends. So the Great Commission, the mission of disciple-making, is not just for the church collectively or for the leadership of the church, but is for the individual Christian. Believers also have an obligation to help meet the physical needs of other believers. James 2, 15 to 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And James is saying, it's for you spiritual ones out there, right? Go in peace, you have Christ, but you have nothing to eat. And James is saying, how are you going to love a brother like that, right? How are you going to take care of someone? How are you going to show Christ's love without giving them what they need? 1 John 3, 17 to 18, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now it's interesting because these two verses in particular are, are cited especially to say that Christians need to be involved in humanitarian causes in this world. 
I'm saying, okay, the church should be involved in the love of neighbor, but don't use these two verses. Why? Because these take care of the needs of whom? Other brothers and sisters in Christ. Our primary obligation when it comes to physical needs is one another. So we make disciples individually. We care for one another in the church. But there's more that God calls us to. God calls Christians, his followers, to work and to love our neighbor. To work and to love our neighbor. In Genesis 1, God commanded Adam and Eve and all mankind to have dominion over the earth, to work it, to keep it, to steward it. And that dominion mandate, that that command to work, didn't end after Genesis 3, after the introduction of sin. It is reiterated. We are still the image of God. We still represent him on earth. We still rule on his behalf. Genesis 9, after Noah left the ark. God gave him that same charge. We are today in the church age to rule this land, work in our jobs, build good societies, strive for true biblical justice. We are exiles in this land, but this world for now is our home. Now at at FBC, and I believe the scriptures teach that the kingdom of Christ is coming. The kingdom is not here yet, but when Christ comes and he establishes his throne in Jerusalem, and when he sits on that throne, that kingdom is coming. So the primary mission of the church collectively is not to build his kingdom, but to preach the message of the kingdom, to prepare citizens of that coming kingdom. But the mission of the individual Christian is to pursue the welfare of their city. And as they do that, they're not building the kingdom of Christ. They're just loving their neighbor and trying to build this world in a way that is honoring to God. Let me read Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. And for those of us who might think, man, we're just exiles on this earth. I have no responsibility to it. My my home is in heaven and I'm going to be a hermit until the day I die. Read these words Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And I love this statement. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And we know that, beloved, right? In the situation that we live in, in the welfare of this country, in this state, in this city, so we will have our welfare. God calls us individually as his followers not to civic disengagement, but to civic engagement. Think about this. 
what would have happened to the world and to the people of God if Joseph, the son of Jacob, was not involved in the Egyptian court? Right? God used Joseph to save the known world from a devastating famine. What if Mordecai and Esther threw up their hands and said, well, we're in exile. I read the book of Jeremiah 70 years and then I'm back home. We'll just hide until things get better and God takes us back to our homeland. What if Daniel and his friends did not stand up for Yahweh under Babylonian and Persian rule? What if Nehemiah wasn't cupbearer to the king? What if he didn't use his position of influence to finish the work of the temple? And how did Nehemiah get there, right? Nehemiah the Jew, the cupbearer to the most powerful person in the world. I think about the book of Proverbs. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings and not before obscure men. And you look at the book of Nehemiah and what Nehemiah did in his life, he was a special dude. He was something else. What if William Wilberforce did not tirelessly fight, fight tooth and nail for the end of the slave trade in the British Empire? What if we seek to disengage from society and this world? If Christians, who are the light of the world, seek to hide, that is not what God has called us to. When the darkness is great, we must shine even brighter. Now that's going to look different for every one of us, is it not? God calls each of us to unique situations, unique platforms, unique positions of influence. But let us use those platforms that God has given us for the good of our neighbor, for the good of our country. Beloved, I want to challenge you, to challenge you, to be a force for good in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your cities, in the state, in this country, and in this world. And for some of us, that will mean going to work every day, being faithful in our jobs, doing our work with excellence, treating our coworkers fairly, or perhaps staying home and raising your children and preparing the next generation. It could be helping our neighbors as they need help. And I believe that is probably the calling that most of us, the majority of us, will have. And praise God for that, and let us use those, those platforms for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. But I pray that some of us, some of us in our midst, would in a unique and special way fight for true justice, biblical justice in this land. That you would fight for the, the liberties and the rights that we have in this country so that we as a church might live quiet and dignified lives well-pleasing to the Lord. Be a voice for those who are truly oppressed. For the millions who are slaughtered in the womb. 
Be a voice for them. Speak God's word into darkness. Run for office if that is what what God is calling you to do, right? Seek the welfare of your city. On the Christian church, we we hold up the Ezra's of our church, right? The, The Bible teachers, the ones who can open the scriptures, people like Spurgeon. Let us not forget that for every Ezra, there was a Nehemiah. That for every Spurgeon, there was a Wilberforce who did great good for their neighbor. And this is how the church prepares its people for the good works that God has called them to do. The church teaches its people the whole counsel of God on all of life. And then we all, with our hearts, set ablaze by Scripture, with our consciences informed by the Word of God, we go into this world and we shine the light of Christ into the world that so desperately needs it. So that is what we need to do. We must speak the gospel. We must shine the light of Christ. Let me close the message with this. And you all know this, and I don't want to camp out on this, but we all know, we all know, as I think even Steve was alluding to earlier, that California is difficult, right? It's difficult. But, but let me read a couple of scriptures that I think has direct bearing on our situation. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. Again, back to the Apostle Paul. Back to the Apostle Paul. What would Paul have done? And he says this to the Corinthians, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For, why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Guys, I want to come to you. I want to spend time with you. But I'm staying here in Ephesus, the place where there were, the place that was rocked by riots. I'm staying here because Christ has opened a wide open door for me, for the gospel. And there are many opponents. That pretty much sums up the life of Paul, right? An open door, many opponents. And this is what God is doing here at FBC, amen? God is at work in this church. There is a wide and effective door open to us here in Upland in California. We must speak. We must shine. There are many adversaries. There will be many adversaries. Listen to Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, what's the first command Paul gives in the book of 1 Timothy? Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
And we know about Timothy, that he was at times timid and fearful. And Paul had to charge him to remain at Ephesus. Timothy, stay there and fight. Fight, Timothy. Beloved, none of us knows, none of us knows how long we have to live on this earth or in this city or in this state. None of us knows where we will be in the future. None of us. But so long as we are here, let us fight. Let us fight the good fight of faith that Christ himself fought, that Paul fought, that Timothy fought. And Timothy, by the way, stayed in Ephesus. He was martyred. He found his courage. As long as we are here, let us fight the fight of faith. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. Christ has crushed Satan. He has cast away our sins. He has conquered death. What do we have to fear? Christ himself promised us, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So with the strength of Christ, may this church, Foothill Bible Church, make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus. And may you, Christian, as you go into this world, may you open your mouth and speak of Christ. May you shine the light of Christ in a world of darkness. Let's pray. Father, the task before us is daunting in a certain sense. We need you. Father, your son, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He ran his race by faith. May we place our eyes on Christ. And him find strength to fight. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.